Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. We create an experiment where we have basically changed the inputs. We are inputting angry, happy, neutral faces in the system. We're also inputting these black squares in the system to help us understand what outputs come out, but also what is the mechanical or mechanistic function of the algorithm. We all need to become more familiar with these systems, at least as consumers, but then a lot of us are are working for companies or in, in systems where this is going to become more common. And I think that there just a, there's a lot of misunderstanding about how these things actually work. And that's trauma. That's the only way they can know to go back in and fix their algorithm is someone saying, yo, this hurt. So now when you Google black girl, they went the other direction. If you Google black girl and, and look at the images that come up, it is women with like stethoscopes and graduation caps. Well, Colin, today we are going to talk about one of your favorite topics of all time. Luton Town Football Team. The Luton Town Football Club and how they're the worst <laughs> football club ever. Uh, no, no, second from worst. So, we're going to talk about your second favorite topic, which is artificial intelligence. I don't know if you saw the headlines recently that an AI engine at Google has ranked the Luton Town football, football Club as the worst football club ever in the history. <laughs> you and I have talked about uh, AI in several different formations. I was at a conference a few months ago where I saw the most fascinating presentation about artificial intelligence and, and, and just a, a really different approach on it um, right. than I had seen in other places. And so I grabbed my friend Broderick and asked him if he'd come on, and he graciously agreed. So welcome, Broderick Turner, to the podcast. Welcome, welcome. welcome. Hey, how y'all guys doing? I'm excited. So uh, Broderick is an uh, assistant, I almost said an artificial professor. Broderick's an (laughs) artificial (laughs) professor. He's an Uh, assistant. So so we've got two of them on today. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, let's be fair. Being a professor is not like a real job. We get to sit around and read and think all day. Oh, you don't need to convince Colin that I don't have a real job. No, yeah. He's an assistant professor of marketing at Virginia Tech. So Broderick went to undergrad at the place that I currently teach at Emory, and then he completed his PhD at the place that I got my PhD at Northwestern. So I think, as the kids say, we're basically twinners at this point. Yes. I didn't hear any pushback on that, so we're going to go with that. Broderick and I are twinners. It's now been officially encoded. I'll take it. So why don't we start then with just a discussion about what artificial intelligence is. It's such a a promising technology. It's so exciting that I worry a little bit that people kind of treat it like it's magic. So Broderick, do you have kind of, when you're introducing artificial intelligence to people who don't understand it very well, how do you start talking about it? So I use this definition that I stole from Kathy O'Neill. She wrote this book. Weapons of Math Destruction. Math Destruction? Math Destruction. Math Destruction. And so she wrote this book basically on the promise in the warnings around AI. And her definition is that algorithms are opinions embedded in code. Right? (laughs) Mm, I love that. I think that is the most 
apt description of how algorithms and machine learning actually works, right? And so when I teach students about this stuff, I ask them, are they familiar with like the basic formula for a linear regression? And almost everyone is because you've taken algebra one or two, which is Y equals MX plus B. Everyone's heard of this, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And what AI does is it decides the Y is some outcome, right? Like we're going to approve a loan or deny a loan. We are going to show this image or that image. We are going to approve parole or not approve parole. That's the Mm -hmm. Y. And the thing that matters, though, is that M, right? It's how much weight we're putting on some input X. And that's it. That's all AI is. It's just a bunch of of Y equals MX plus Bs stacked on top of each other and not too much more than that. We should start asking ourselves, what inputs are they looking at, A? And B, how much weight, how much importance are they placing on these inputs? And who decided that importance? And we have not gotten to the point where AI itself is deciding its importance. In general, is us as human beings that have made this decision. We've made a bunch of tiny decisions that add up to something that looks like magic, but really is just like 10th grade algebra on top of itself. There's this general understanding that these these machine learning algorithms or, or this artificial intelligence is somehow kind of pure, like in a way where it's it's kind of like... Uh, it starts from scratch, almost right. like it, right. it, it self develops, it evolves, and it, it may get to that point at some point down the line. But it's not that way now. It, it is built, like, and and anything that's built by humans, there's the risk that humans are going to influence the creation in some way that imbalances it. Yeah, I'm under the the school that we will never get to Skynet, right? Like, there is never going to be an artificial intelligence that is somehow smarter than the mass of human beings. Skynet destroyed the world in the Terminator movies. Yes. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm okay with us not getting there. I would prefer that we don't get okay. there. Okay. If we're taking votes on whether or not to end the world, I'm I'm anti. I'm calm. Yeah, but but this idea that there is that we are going to use a bunch of linear regressions to replace human thought and cognition is doesn't really make any sense when you realize that it's just a bunch of regressions on top of each other. And our brains and the way that we process information and understand the world are much more complex, right? So often what happens is that people will compare algorithms to human beings and say, hey, humans are just a bunch of algorithms themselves, and we're not, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're doing a lot of processing in spaces that we have yet to understand. Your average person, your below average intelligent person is a million times smarter than your smartest AI today. And let me ask you a naive question then, Broderick, because it's really interesting what you're saying. So my naive question is, isn't it therefore meant to learn? So again, from a naive perspective, I go, well, from what I've heard, AI is meant to learn. And isn't the argument that because it learns so fast that it gets there. Now, I I buy into the the whole bias bit and everything else, but isn't that part of the argument or not? Yeah, so let's say that they're learning, okay? It's learning more about what the value of M is and what X is to put into the algorithm. Right. But that's it. That's 
kind of the extent of the learning that you could there there's going to be some computer scientists and this and talks about you know what about other types of models and they'll talk about sine waves or something super complex but the basic building blocks are is 10th grade algebra right and so the way i think about this is that there are motivational limits to ai which is how much do we as the people who make AI care about anything or any problem. But I think more important, there are mechanistic or like mechanical limitations to the math and AI, right? If I'm going to take an infinite amount of possible input and I have to come out with some binary decision, yes, no, good, bad, do parole, don't do parole, then I have simplified the space between infinity and some answer to a point that like the learning in and of itself can't be that complex, right? Again, I don't want to like uh, do this thing where I'm like, AI is always going to be dumb, but in the near term, AI is going to be really dumb. Sure. Uh, and so we shouldn't assume artificial intelligence. I think the assumption we have to make for any machine learning is this artificial ignorance. And we should start to qualify what can it do and what are the limitations and like essentially don't make the assumption that these things are going to get smarter and gain sentience. So let me ask you then, because I want to dig into this artificial ignorance notion and into the, the biases that can be built into these systems or can develop into these systems. Let me ask you the other side of the question first before I move on that. What is AI good for? So in what area, because it's clearly catching on, people are excited about it, it can be you know, applied to these various areas, kind of what are the advantages of these new techniques where the algorithm itself determines the weights that are put on the input relative to the old way of doing it, which is where kind of the, the researcher decides the weights themselves? Well, A, let's, I'm going to break down in two parts. One, Please. The researcher and the developers are mostly deciding what the weights are today. Okay. That's the first part. And even in unsupervised machine learning, the way that the weights get added back in is still someone's decision about how to get the weights back into the system. I learned something. That's that's news. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So the, the, the first part is we still make that decision. It's still an opinion. We're going to a bunch of opinions. In terms of what is AI good for, or like algorithmic marketing or algorithmic decision-making, mm -hmm. it works well in spaces that have limited inputs where we have like some very high confidence around what the weight should be that lead to some outcome, right? So there are a host of uh, problems where you can limit what comes out to a handful of things, right? So how much should I change like, the temperature in a machine that extrudes some type of plastic or something. And I know all the inputs going in and I know how much I should weight them. Great. Let's add AI to that. Right. Or if we think even from like a consumer end, what's the most successful like AI or like robotics product we've had, right? We've had 40 years of robotics research. What do you think is the most successful product that's ever been put into the homes of people? Successful in terms of sales? Sales in does the job that it says it's going to do. A toaster. No, I mean, a toaster, sort of, yeah. Uh, I would say it's the Roomba. Oh, wow. right? Like, yeah. The, the Roomba is a robot that makes decisions. Like, if I bump into this turn, right, and then remember where I've turned and then do that again, 
I watched the Jetsons as a kid. I all thought we were going to get a Rosie and we got a Roomba, right? Because that's, <laughs> that's kind of the limit. That's basically as good as it's going to get for quite some time. AI tends to work well when there's kind of limited numbers of inputs, when the, the correlations or, or the out, correlations with outputs are pretty clear. And when there's clear like rule systems like mapping a room or like a, a game of chess, for example, where we exactly. know what all the rules are, can measure what all the inputs are. Exactly that, right? And so this is why I'm totally fine with the Roomba, but I have a Tesla and would never ever do uh, self-driving in a Tesla, right? Because the number of inputs are essentially infinity, whereas the number of inputs for a Roomba are these four walls and the furniture I have. Very helpful. Not if you're driving a Tesla, is not. Yeah, yeah, don't. I mean, Teslas are great cars when you're doing driving them yourself, right? But don't use the self-driving portion. I've actually let the the Tesla self-drive within my house and it does fine. Um, <laughs> there you go. That's one way to do it. It just doesn't <laughs> doesn't clean your carpet very well. No, no, it's terrible at that. All right, so I want to transition to your specific research. Thank you for the the background on AI um, and I really loved getting that perspective because it's it is so often just the cheerleaders of AI who are getting all the space without any kind of discussion of the nuance. So I appreciate that. Tell us about these AI audits that you've conducted. Awesome. So again, if algorithms are just opinions written in code, then, and it's lots of opinions, then we can start to use some of the tools that we've learned as social psychologists or cognitive psychologists or consumer behavior researchers to investigate what those opinions are and what outcomes come out of those systems, right? And so the way that we think about an algorithm audit, it is essentially an experiment that reduces variability so we can make tests of the outcome that comes out of a system, right? So as an example, we just finished a project where we were trying to figure out if there was an emotional, uh, we'll call it emotional expression preference built into some algorithms on video sharing platforms. I'm going to break down each part of that into language that like anybody can understand. So if you go to YouTube right now and open up YouTube, you will see that YouTube has selected a thumbnail or someone has selected a thumbnail image to represent the underlying video. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can think of those thumbnails as kind of mini advertisements for what video is under that thumbnail. So you click the thumbnail and then the video starts to play. And we use thumbnails or companies use thumbnails because they lower bandwidth. So things aren't playing all the time. And because they work, they get, they induce people to click on things. Right. And as a marketer, I love when people click on things, right? That, Mm -hmm. that means I've done my job well if someone's clicking on something. So we looked at this and said, huh, this is interesting. There are all these thumbnails. Are these thumbnails people are choosing? Or is this like a default algorithm that helps choose or tell you which thumbnail you should select? Then we took the top trending videos from 2017. We had a, I found a, a data set that listed all of the top trending videos from that year. And we were able to look at what thumbnail is currently available, right? Like what is the thumbnail for those top, I think it was like 2,800 videos. And of those, 
we looked at him and said, huh, it's interesting that 82% of those videos have a human's face because people love faces and faces work to get people to click on them. And if they have these faces, what facial expressions are these people making? Right? Because we know that faces relay information and the facial expressions themselves are almost contagious. So like right now, if I was smiling at you, if someone smiles at you, people tend to smile back. If someone is frowning, you tend to frown. And so it's a relatively simple way that if a company or a platform had some motivation to change your behavior, maybe they would want to show more smiles, right? Or maybe they want to show more frowns. And so it's an open question. And then the world we live in as consumer behavior researchers, we get really excited about this because we can ask, okay, what might a platform do here? And so I, I mentioned earlier that algorithms are both motivated and they are mechanical. So we want to think about both parts of that understanding of them. When I say motivated, that means that a firm has some objective function that they want to get across. They want you to click on stuff or they want you to like things or they want you to comment or they want you to spend more time. Like a firm wants you to do a lot of things. And so an algorithm should be designed such that it changes people's behavior in some way. So real quick, Broderick, before I saw your research, I had assumed that the thumbnail images on, on YouTube or on Facebook or where, Instagram, wherever you got these videos, that it was the content creator who would choose the thumbnail themselves. A content creator can, but both Facebook and YouTube have suggested defaults. And that's based on an algorithm. Exactly. Right. And to change the default still requires some work on the part of the content creator. If you're going to make any bet on people, always bet on laziness. <laughs> right. So in general, people love a default. Right. Like we just don't think about defaults. Now, if you're like a heavy content creator and your job is to get people to click on things, then I would expect that you're more likely to change the thumbnail than what the default is. But the vast majority of videos on YouTube or Facebook are not professional content creators. It's us, right? Like, I am not an influencer, but I've definitely posted stuff to YouTube. Like, hey, look at my dog running in circles. <laughs> and I'm not thinking of what's the best thing to post here to get someone to click on it. But the algorithm is designed to like elicit some preference. But we assume that what we post is what others see. I think there's some way to say that fastly whizzy pop or something. That might not necessarily be the case. So we wanted to look at that and investigate it. And so what we did first is try to uncover what the motivation might be for a firm to change the default thumbnail. So we do that, which is a basic experiment. This is not an algorithm audit. So we made our own feeds of static images. We brought participants into like a little online space where they would get 10 pictures of people smiling, or they get 10 pictures of people uh, making angry faces, or 10 pictures of people making neutral facial expressions. And under each picture, they had an option where they could like, comment, and share. And so all we wanted to do then is essentially count how many of those, when you got those images, did you click more likes? Did you click more comments? Did you click more shares? And so what we found is that when people got happy faces, they were more likely to click like. When people got angry faces, they were more likely to click comment than they were if they got happy or neutral. So everybody's following that so far, right? Yep. Yes. All right. So we can think a firm might be motivated to design an algorithm that has happy faces if they want people to like 
the videos that are posted. And an algorithm might be designed to show more angry faces. They won't want people to comment on the videos that are shown. And so you can think of that as some objective function that a firm has, right? Let's increase engagement or let's increase liking. Those are something that a firm might want people to change. So Ryan, have you heard of the People's Choice Podcast Award? Sure. It's an opportunity for people to tell the industry which podcasts are their favorites. I assume you're asking for no particular reason at all right now. No particular reason other than to ask the listeners out there and our audience listening in to just go down below, click on the link, cast your vote. We're in the business section, the Intuitive Customer Podcast. It would really mean a lot to Ryan and I if you could make that vote. Thanks very much. It would. Thank you. So this goes back to your argument about the motivation that underlies the, the algorithm. 100%. What are we trying to optimize with this algorithm? Exactly that, right? And so again, we can say, this is an opinion of the developers, an opinion of, of a bunch of developers to make these algorithms to do just that. Okay. So now we can go, okay, let's see then if their algorithms are creating a preference for these faces. So how do we do that? So we took those static images. We used something called the Chicago Face Database. The Chicago Face Database has, I think, 200 or 300 people in this database. They're all sitting in front of the same white background, wearing the same gray shirt with no jewelry and no facial hair. So it cuts out a lot of extraneous information that you might get. Of those models, 149 of them have a uh, picture of them in it with a happy facial expression angry facial expression or a neutral facial expression. And so what me and my co-authors did is that we put together a bunch of videos where we had a static image for four seconds of an angry face, a happy face, a neutral face, and then we counterbalanced those for each of those 149 models. You get six videos where the order of those facial expressions is counterbalanced. You end up with 847 videos. And then to account for understanding how the mechanical part of the algorithm works, right? So I told you they're both motivated and mechanical. We added four seconds static images of just a black background. And the reason we did that is to see, okay, is the algorithm designed to first detect a face and then make a decision? Or is it just randomly selecting any one of the still images in this video? Was there so there were four total images or five total images? It's two black images to start the video in the video. In the middle, there are three faces that are in different orders: angry, happy, neutral. So if the algorithm is choosing just purely by random, then two fifths of the time the thumbnail should be a blank screen, just a black. Exactly. exactly. And if it was preferring faces, if it was screening for faces, then essentially you'd never get a thumbnail that was just a blank image. Exactly. Exactly. If you're screaming for a certain emotion, then that should appear more often. Exactly that. Right. And that is you've, Brian, just described how an algorithm audit works, which is we create an experiment where we have basically changed the inputs. So we are inputting angry, happy, neutral faces in the system. We're also inputting these black squares in the system to help us understand both what outputs come out, but also what is the mechanical or mechanistic function of the algorithm? Going back to the, the math 
parallel here because I know everybody understand their things best if we can put it in terms of ninth grade algebra that they've all forgotten. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> when, 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 if you, when your math teacher, when you were in class and someone said, when will I ever use this? Now. 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 Should have paid attention. So essentially, like there's, there's this equation that we don't know. It's Y equals MX plus B in some way, and we don't know what it is. But you've controlled essentially the X's. We're going to put in certain X's and then you'll be able to measure the outputs Y and from exactly. that, kind of be able to back your way into what the equation exactly is. that, exactly that. I love right? it. And the B we can consider error, right? Or the intercept. And so you try to control for as much error as you can by basically reducing variability, right? So again, using the same background, no facial hair, no earrings, and like, you know, they're making consistent facial expressions. So a naive question again, why would somebody want to do an audit? Because I can't call Facebook and ask them how their algorithm works for two reasons. One, they probably won't tell me. And two, they probably don't know. Right. Because again, this is a bunch of algorithms, or sorry, it's a bunch of regressions built on top of each other. Developer Bob was there 12 years ago his code is still there. And then they've had 30 other Bobs and Bobettes since then. But the aim of the platform may not have shifted drastically over that time, right? And so a lot of times we don't actually know what all the regressions are, right? And they just assume, like we assume that it is some ground truth that's coming out and not just a bunch of opinions built on top of each other. Right. They're tinkering with the system to maximize viewing click-throughs or, or length of views or, or number of comments, and it's working, but they may not know why it's working. They just know that this version works better than that version, and over time, they keep tinkering with it, but they don't know why. Yep, yep. And so this is where an audit comes in, right? Because, heck, even if we, if it's the same reason we run social psychology experiments, right? It's that even if you ask people, why do you do this? versus I'm going to run an experiment and see what you do, people will tell you anything, right? Uh, <laughs> we are very good at rationalizing our behavior, but what people actually do matters. And so this is how I think about algorithm audits as a way to see what these algorithms actually do. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. I know we're running low on time and, and we got to get to the, the punchline. We got to get to the results. So what did what did your audit find? So I know you know the answer to this, round. So ask Colin. All right. So Colin, we ran this on uh, both Facebook and YouTube. We uploaded these 847 videos at least five times over five days. What do you think happened? Did Facebook and YouTube select? First question, did they select for faces or did they randomly select one of the five images? Select for faces. Yeah, so the thumbnail that came out, did it choose on average a face or did it choose 40% of the time a, a black background? I would say a face. Okay, you're right. First things first, the mechanism of the algorithm is that it recognizes faces, so it chooses a face. It only chose out of the 27,000 uploads we had, I think 0.03% of them were a black screen, which could just be noise essentially. Okay, so 99.97% are faces. Of those faces, did Facebook select for angry, happy, or neutral? And did YouTube select for angry, happy, or neutral? Just take a guess based on what you know about Facebook and what you know about YouTube. Happy. Which one? Facebook? Both of them. 
Okay. So it turns out that YouTube selects for happy faces about twice as likely as you would expect or 200% more uh, likely than you would expect if it was just randomly choosing a face from the three faces that were available. Facebook, on the other hand, chooses for angry faces about 50% more than you would expect. Wow. Right? That's part one. Now, the beauty of using the Chicago Face Database is that they recruited both black, white, male, and female models to do their pictures. And so we also know for each model in the Chicago Face Database that we made six videos, what their race and gender is. And right. so when we talk about mechanical limitations, I also classify that under, when you asked about training earlier in learning, if the training that goes into these algorithms is in some way biased, i.e. they don't have a lot of faces of people that are phenotypically black, right? Then there might see some bias from this uh, mechanistic end. And so you look at YouTube for black females in our data set, it is more random for the selection of angry, happier, neutral faces. Essentially, one way to think about this is that it's been trained on more white than black faces and more male than female faces, which is the case. Uh, there's some uh, work by Timmy Gabru that kind of looks at this. Black women are more invisible, essentially, on YouTube selection algorithm than white males. On Facebook, when I told you that 50% of the time, or it's 50% more likely to angry face, that is almost twice as true when it's the face of a white male. And so white men in our data set on Facebook were shown to be the angriest. Uh, and so there's kind of this like angry white male effect that we get where it's like 145% more likely that you're going to get an angry white face. Our angry white male face, it make the program choose between happy, angry, or neutral. Again, what we learned from this, I, I, this is not an indictment on Facebook or YouTube. It's just to say that if your objective function is designed around increasing comments, then maybe it makes sense because people will comment more on these angry posts and angry images. And this is one way to look at this, right? So like thumbnail selection is a single way to understand some platform's objective function, but there are a lot of things, right? So uh, you know, you can look at the text, we could look at cropping. There's a, a lot of ways to peer into this. And this is the way that we chose is kind of where our background is. Then I think it's super exciting. Yeah, no, that sounds really, really fascinating. Uh, and, and I guess part of that must depend upon, I've heard, I don't know if this is the case, but YouTube, there are more males that watch YouTube anyway. Um, yes and no. We can think of this, like there's still a bunch of questions about how these things develop. But one of my uh, my co-authors, Jean Dulu, she's a, a doctoral student at Virginia Tech. And so she went and found what are like called like the test sets for computer vision, right? So a lot of the computer vision stuff and this, these, this cropping or this uh, thumbnail selection sits in the world of computer vision, they will train their algorithms on billions of images. But when they go to test them, they test on a limited, like standardized set of images. And so she found three different ones. I think it came up to like 12,000 different images. We put together this thing on a, a site called Zooniverse, where you can just bring in hundreds and hundreds of people, sure. basically click on images and, and, and annotate them. And so she asked, okay, A, is there a face in these images? And then 
phenotypically, right? Because again, race is not real, but like there is some some people do understand phenotypes, right? Kind of real fuzzy boundaries around some of these categories. Right. So like phenotypically, is this a face of a black person, a white person, an East Asian person, et cetera? And what she found was that there are very few black people. There are very few South Asian people. There are a few more East Asian faces, but like 90-ish percent of faces in these standard test sets were white people. If this is how you test your algorithm before you roll it out, then you'll be able to name the bias. Exactly, right? And then the only way for an algorithm to learn, right? Because you talk about learning, is for someone to experience some trauma. So sure. my favorite example of this is back in October of 2021, or is it maybe October 2020? I get it's it's pandemic. Everything time has lost all meaning. Yeah. So Twitter had a cropping algorithm. And so if you put a big picture on Twitter, Twitter uh, had an algorithm that decided which part of that picture would they show on their feed, right? And so somebody posted an image where it was Barack Obama and Mitch McConnell and Twitter cropped the image to McConnell over and over again, right? Quite a few algorithm auditors started testing this and then Twitter tested their own algorithm because it came out this algorithm might have some built-in bias. And they reported themselves that there was slight male bias. So male images are more likely to be seen than female images and a slight, call it ethnic racial bias, where people that were phenotypically considered uh, white were more likely to be seen than people who were phenotypically considered black, right? And so, again, it's not because Twitter wants to show, like, white people or wants to show male faces. It's just the that's the mechanism part of the algorithm that gets put back in and, like... Sure. <laughs> wow. and then, so, but the only way they saw this was through the trauma where black people and females were said, yo, this is bad. I don't like this. Same thing for Google, right? So years ago, Google had this thing where if you Googled black girl or black woman and looked at the images, there was a preponderance of images of pornography, which is bad. And so because their algorithm was built on what was most salient and what's on the Internet other than porn. Right. Like that is my favorite musical Avenue Q as a song. The Internet's for porn. I mean, that's a lot of it on the Internet. Right. And so if you have built your algorithm on which links are most popular. Right. It doesn't mean that in the world that black girls are doing pornography, right? It's a very, 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 very small uh, number of people. It just means that that is what's overrepresented. And so people are Googling black girl and getting pornography back. And that's trauma, right? Like that's, that, that's the only way they can know to go back in and fix their algorithm is someone saying, yo, this hurt. So now when you Google black girl, they went the other direction. If you Google black girl and, and look at the images that come up, it is women with like stethoscopes and wow. uh, graduation good. caps. <laughs> Excellent. Good. good. That's fascinating. So I, I think all, all of this has been fascinating and something I hadn't really considered. What are the practical things? So, you know, let's do the sort of so what test as it were, or what would you advise people to go away and do some practical steps? So I'm going to give you something that I do myself. Whenever you read a news story about the promise 
or like this AI has done something that is superhuman or this AI is sentient, take a pause. like like really investigate the claims and investigate who is making the claim that somehow something is sentient and knows more right so like a google engineer tells you that their huge language model is sentient just slow down and it it probably is not the other thing is that for people that are either working in these companies that are currently using uh, a bunch of like algorithm marketing or hiring companies to this type of work, you should also ask the question of who decided the uh, what inputs in there and who decided the weights of the input? And can you tell me? And if they can't, just assume that it's all made up, right? And so I am a huge proponent, especially for researchers out there, if you are trying to like figure out where to take your research agenda, you already have the tools in place, right? You already know how to run an experiment. Run the experiment on the algorithm itself, right? You can do that. It's okay to violate some terms and conditions. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> and start getting some answers back. Fascinating. And Ryan, your thoughts? What I loved most about seeing Broderick's research for the first time was just the radically different view it gave me of artificial intelligence, just a different way of thinking about it. We all need to become more familiar with these systems, at least as consumers. But then a lot of us are, are working for companies or in, in systems where this is going to become more common. And I think that there just a, there's a lot of misunderstanding about how these things actually work in practice. And for the promise of AI, and I'm, I'm sure that it does some really cool things and it is in advance, it also introduces, though, this kind of black box effect where, you know, we're optimizing on these outcomes and they, and we are getting better results from these outcomes. But it creates this opaque system in between where we, we no longer know as well why we're getting these outcomes or, or what's causing it. And I think that the, the tool that Broderick walked us through today, these, these audits, allow us to kind of reclaim some of that in-between knowledge where we can kind of back our way into that equation. And and I think that that's like really valuable and important and can be applied in all kinds of spaces. I love the phrase that algorithms are opinions that are embedded in code. What are the opinions? And we could spend another hour just talking about what are the AI systems in customer service areas and how are they embedded and what opinions and blah, 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 blah. The other practical thing, Colin, is if you have a self-driving car, don't trust it. (laughs) (laughs) Serious. Again, AI, you can only learn through trauma. There has to be some failure to learn. I don't want to be the trauma. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good point. Well made. So, brother, if people want to get hold of you, then then how do they do that? Great. So I um, co-founded this lab a couple of years ago called the Trap Lab. It's the technology race and Prejudice Lab, and we have a website, jointhetrap.com. So if you go there, you can uh, come hang out with us. We have a weekly meeting over Zoom starting up again in September. And then if you want to like reach out to me, I'm very slow about replying to emails because my job is to get to the bottom of things and not stay on top of them. But you can find me. I'm not like completely hidden on the internet. Google Broderick Turner, I am there. I am not the dude that writes for the LA Times. Great. We'll put those uh, links in the, in the show notes. And thank you very much for coming on the show today. Much appreciated. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks for the invite. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, just a reminder, 
it would be really great if you could vote for us in the People's Choice Podcast Award. The voting is only in the month of July. The link is in the show notes and it really doesn't take long to cast your vote. And it would really mean a lot to both Ryan and I. Thanks very much. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Intuitive Customer.